killing are the Islamists about to carry out another and is there anything the United States and the UK can do about it? Let's be clear what this act is. It is an act of murder and murder without any justification. And NATO leaders are preparing for their summit next month but is modern terrorism tearing up their plans in front of them? British security services are trying to identify the man with an English accent who killed American journalist James Foley. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, has denounced the killing. First of all, let me condemn completely the barbaric and brutal act that has taken place. And let's be clear what this act is. It is an act of murder, and murder without any justification. Now, we have not uh, identified the individual responsible on the video, but from what we've seen, it looks increasingly likely that it is a British citizen. Meanwhile, the United States says it attempted to rescue Americans being held hostage by Islamic State in Syria. Special operations forces were dropped from the air at a target location, but the hostages, including James Foley, were not there. President Barack Obama made a statement yesterday. The United States of America will continue to do what we must do to protect our people. We will be vigilant and we will be relentless. When people harm Americans anywhere, we do what's necessary to see that justice is done and we act against ISIL standing alongside others. Well, I'm joined by BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee, as usual, as well as Major General Julian Thompson, who commanded three commando brigade during the Falklands War. Uh, first, though, let's talk to Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington about that failed rescue attempt. Simon, hello. Um, what has Congress been saying about this? Well, there will be, I think, questions asked uh, in detail of the Obama administration about precisely what level of rescue attempt was launched to try and save James Foley because uh, the disclosure that some sort of an attempt was made that, that failed because the hostages that they were trying to rescue were not present uh, when they uh, arrived on the scene came just as the Obama administration was beginning to face uh, some criticism here about whether it had done enough to keep James Foley Foley's case in the public mind uh, and questions about whether behind the scenes it had done enough to secure his release. Those close to Mr Foley's family say the relationship with the US government had been somewhat strained over the course of the last several months uh, and it was in light of those revelations that suddenly uh, the Department of Defence disclosed that at least one attempt was made to try and rescue him. And Simon, in general, what has the country's reaction been to the killing? Well, I think, obviously, shock, uh, horror, dismay and amazement. Um, but I would say that that is tempered by the fact that until a couple of days ago, it's fair to say that James Foley's name was not particularly widely known here. Uh, this is not a case that has been on the front pages of the newspapers for the last couple of years. There's been sporadic coverage of it here on radio and television. Uh, but Mr Foley's family, I think, 
think could have frankly walked down any American high street until a couple of days ago uh, in uh, relative anonymity. And again, that's adding to the questions about the way in which uh, the United States sought to handle this case, raising questions about whether it is best to try and resolve all these matters quietly or whether you do actually need to maintain uh, some degree of public presence and public campaigning uh, in order to try and give hostages like James Foley the best chance of release. And is there much public support for the airstrikes? Uh, there is uh, public support for the airstrikes, but again, tempered by the fact that this is all taking place at a time when the country, as you know, is war-weary, and President Obama has repeatedly said he is not going to get dragged back into, into committing ground forces uh, in Iraq. Now, that having been said, he's already sent over a 1,000 military advisors, which is the phrase the administration is describing, troops that are present in Iraq, not in a a combat role, the, the Obama White House says, uh, and yesterday the Pentagon indicated that that number may increase. So we could be heading to a point where there is a bit of a debate here publicly about at what stage a military advisor in Iraq becomes a boot on the ground. All right, Simon Marks in Washington, thank you for your time today. Um, Major General Julian Thompson, uh, 20 or more foreign hostages being held by Islamic State. Um, what's the best way to deal with a hostage situation? Well, the, 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 the best way is to try and do some kind of deal, of course. Uh, it avoids bloodshed. But the trouble is, who do you do a deal with? And the Americans, of course, have got a policy of not doing deals over hostages. As so do you, believe, do you believe that even on the quiet there would not have been any talk with IS on this? Well, there might well have been, but I don't know about it. Um, uh, and indeed, if it was on the quiet, I shouldn't know about it by, by extension. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's not, really, not something that generally happens as a matter of course that, that no one talks about. Yes, it does happen. But, but uh, how openly they, they do it is entirely up to them. And furthermore, the, 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 the point is, it's very difficult to find out where these people are because they're not stupid. Yes, they move them around. They know that rescue attempts may be mounted. So the fact that this rescue attempt apparently failed is not surprising. It doesn't surprise me at all. Christopher. Don't forget these guys were picked up, or, or Foley was picked up, and others were picked up in Syria, mm. not, in, not, not in Iraq. The United Kingdom and the United States state very publicly that they do not negotiate, they do not pay ransoms. Um, you were saying that we've got about 20 hostages still of different nationalities held by IS. Around about 9, 10, 11 uh, have been released in the past 15 months. And that is presumably because of deals being done. Because, but not British, not American. And then you get mm. the you get the bases. Some are there for money, which is a good business. So somebody captures somebody, they don't do any dealing. They pass them on to a rebel group that will then hold them as hostage for whatever. But they will get money for them if they're not American and if they're not British. And those are the ones that have some pol great political uh, uh, value indeed. And I think the other thing to consider, and consider now, is that if America had an idea that this was about to happen, and we do get an impression that they were, they were fearful of this, otherwise why put in a rescue operation, etc. Um, the important thing becomes the fact that during the past week or so, Every indication is that either Americans or people acting for them have been in touch with Islamic State. 
and that is very, very unusual. Now, the next state, of course, is there is another American hostage, and the bombing has continued, mm. and therefore the question is, what happens to him? Well, let's bring in Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. Hello to you, Professor Rogers. Hello. Um, do you think the US should have anticipated this killing? Yes, and they probably did. There were probably assessments made. In these sort of circumstances, you'll have teams who will try and think of everything. How prominent it was is a different matter. But I think there is an exception that uh, the Islamic State uh, has some very sharp people, uh, very sharp minds. They are working to more or less quite a long-term plan, and this would fit into that. I mean, if you take, for example, the way in which the person who committed this murder actually spoke with a British accent, probably a London area accent, that actually raises issues in Europe. It also raises issues in the United States about the fact that this seems to be in a Britain who did this to an American. And so you can see the way that the IS is working in this. And the other big issue, the real difficult issue, is that if there is any major military action against the Islamic State, this is precisely what it wants. In some ways, I think, you know, this dreadful killing is in some wants ways... Wants because... Of, because basically, why? it wants to be engaged with a war with a far enemy. I mean, the whole point is that if you actually have American forces seriously involved against you, then you can portray this as the far enemy having another crack at Islam. So what should America be doing? Um, proceed with great caution. I mean, I think if Bush had been in the White House, we, already been, we would have already been at a, another full-scale war with Iraq. Obama is far more cautious, and I think rightly so. His problem is that while there are important political moves going on in Iraq, with the change over from the Maliki government, a more inclusive government is going to take weeks and probably many months to take effect. And it's what Obama does in the short term then, without actually making matters worse, that is the key. But there's a lot of evidence that the United States is quietly building up more forces in and around Iraq than perhaps people realise. Christopher Lee, what, what about the Arab world? What can be done? Well, the Arab world, we have to think of it initially as the, um, is, is the state of all those countries that come together in something called the Arab League. Now, Traditionally, they don't like to get involved unless they're invading somebody. They don't like to get involved. But even if they did want to get involved, and, and uh, President Obama says, you know, this is a, 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 local, a, a local problem in many ways, even though it spreads to us all. And uh, I think it was something that you, Paul, were writing the other day, saying, you know, the Arabs actually have the, have the, have the condition that they can resolve this for their own interests, etc. But here you come. Um, which Arab states? What forces do they produce? Where do they produce those forces from? Where do they put those forces? They put them in Iraq, into Syria, or, or whatever, because that's the way it will spread. Who commands them? And where is the position of the United States in particular? I mean, do you go back to Homestead Air Force Base in, in Florida, where the you know, Central Command comes from, and you say, OK, all these Arab forces, we are going to command them. No way will that ever happen. That is the difficulty. The initial response is largely as it is at the moment, but escalated probably to the point where you have to say, if we have special forces on the ground, we probably have to have extra special forces, even in the basic thing, for example, training Peshmerga, supply, resupplying Peshmerga to do some of the work, but that takes uh, weeks, months, and maybe you're talking in terms of years. Julian Thompson, airstrikes, special forces, arming Peshmerga, how do you fight a warped ideology that IS has? Well, you, you, you fight it with, with psychological operations as well. You, you, to pick up Christopher's point, there are many Arabs who do not like IS. 
There are many, for example, uh, Sunni tribal leaders in Iraq who backed IS because they could see that the Sunnis were getting a poor deal from the Shia government, more or less, of Iraq. Now, what you've got to do is to wean them away from it. And this is going to take a very long time. And how do you do that? Well, you do it by pointing out that it is not in their interest to support this monster which will devour them. For example, the Saudi rulers are under huge danger from these people. The King of Jordan is, is, is a target. They've already announced that he's a target. So you've got to bring them round to the belief that they've got to do something about it. Now, the, the point that Christopher makes, which I entirely agree, is we're not going to see a, a rerun of Gulf War One, where the Americans are sort of leading the thing and commanding it, and they've got a coalition of willing supporters who do as they're told. It's not going to be like that at all. And it's going to be a, a command and control mess, but we've got to live with that and make it work. The, irony, the irony, of course, is that if, you will, if Islamic State takes on, say, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, or anywhere else in the Gulf, they immediately become vulnerable because they're spreading. At the moment, they are in the strongest position, which is break down the fence between Syria and Iraq, and you keep it like that, and they can handle it. Spread it, you're in trouble. Exactly that. If they take on someone like Jordan in a regular punch-up on the ground against the Jordanian army, they immediately expose themselves to being dealt with by conventional means. All right, let, let's talk about the British military and all of this. The, the commanding officer at RAF Marham has been telling BFBS about the station's current operation over Iraq. Marham is home to the frontline GR4 tornado squadrons and Jeff Mead has spoken to Group Captain Harvey Smith. At the moment, our, the main focus of our operations into Iraq are reconnaissance and surveillance using state-of-the-art equipment on the tornado to help build the intelligence picture to help with the humanitarian aid piece. Now, at the moment, uh, it is based, basically humanitarian reconnaissance. Are you involved in tracking IS in the more military, uh, the, the more aggressive side of that, perhaps? At, at the moment, it's, it's the breadth of everything that recon reconnaissance that we could use to bear. So, um, basically, we're using the aircraft sensors to soak up as much intelligence as we can, everything from left to right of arc. And then we're sharing that across the coalition, everyone that's involved with the operation, to try and help our decision makers make better decisions. Now, we know that IS shouldn't be underestimated. They're a well-armed, capable enemy. What's the threat level to your aircraft? I think in any operation like we see in Iraq or in Afghanistan, there is obviously a threat. And we're very aware of it. We understand it. We've got good capabilities on the aircraft to defend against it. Our people are very highly trained. So I'm confident and comfortable that the crews can operate professionally and safely in that operation. Not carrying weapons at the moment. How much is that under review? Uh, at the moment, like I said, the, the main effort is reconnaissance. Uh, we're really trying to lean into getting our... Uh, best reconnaissance pod into data, which is called the Raptor Pods, which provides very unique and very high-fidelity reconnaissance images. So as we stand today, we continue main effort on reconnaissance. Let's turn to Afghanistan. As I say, you're about to rotate, I think, for the, for the last time for the, yes. the, the air contingent there. Uh, it's perceived very much as a land war. I mean, what do you think the fast jets have brought to it? What's been their contribution? Well, interestingly, um, firstly, we've had fast jets in Afghanistan for many years more than we've had British boots on the grind in any numbers. In fact, I was on the very first squadron that deployed there in 2004 in the Harrier Force. 
Um, and so the, the fast jet pieces over the whole of the country, it's not just about the Helmand Valley. We do much, much more work than just that. Um, but the reality of it is the, the fast jet capability in theatre is the British and the coalition's asymmetric edge over the Taliban and the insurgents. That's the piece that we bring that allows us to fight well above our weight. Um, so in these final few months as we move towards the end of Afghanistan, the fast jets will play a very, very important role in providing a covering force as we collapse our various bases. It will be the jets that are out there putting the eyes and ears on the ground. They'll be able to uh, build the intelligence picture of what's going on and ultimately, if support is required, they can provide it to keep our people safe so that we can all get out in a good, safe and timely manner. And is there enough in the locker? I mean, could you commit to Nigeria if the MOD say that's a mission we want to fulfil? Uh, well, that mission continues to be planned. Um, we wouldn't be planning it if we didn't think that we didn't have a capability there. Um, and as things develop, we'll see how that, how that rolls out. Station Commander at RAF Marham, Group Captain Harvey Smith. Still to come, a group of former defence chiefs urged the Prime Minister to push for a tougher stance on Russia at next month's NATO summit. Well, as we said before on this programme, August is a very busy time for military action and this year is no different. Today I'm joined in the studio by Major General Julian Thompson, who commanded three commando brigades during the Falklands War, and also Christopher Lee as ever, and Professor Paul Rogers, Department for Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. And if we could just talk to you, Professor Rogers, let's just have a look round the world about what else has been going on, because movement in Nigeria, as we've just heard there from the group captain... Yes, obviously there's that. Boko Haram is still a major threat. It is not under control. And there's also been uh, involvement of rather similar-minded groups in neighbouring countries, including Niger. You go to North Africa and obviously Libya almost has the status of a failed state. That's been very hard to take because basically it's oil and gas rich and people expect it to do a lot better than it has done. But that's where we are. We know that Syria continues as a major uh, area of war, linking very closely with Iraq, and we've talked already on the programme about the rise of the Islamic State, and that is really the focus of attention. We're tending to forget, though, that sadly the most recent ceasefire in Gaza has broken down once more, and it looks like that is going to last really quite some time. Very difficult for the Israelis because they do not seem to be able to get a grip on what they want to achieve, mm. and they're finding international opinion moving against them. And in the background, of course, there is still the election stalemate in Afghanistan. There have been ominous signs in the last two or three days of a major move by Taliban elements involving some hundreds of them in one of the provinces near Kabul. So there again, I'm afraid it was very much we're not out of the woods. It, it looks a, a difficult picture. And Julian Thompson, just on that last point about Afghanistan, the longer there's no president, the more dangerous the situation becomes. Yes, it is, because there will be people jumping into what is actually a vacuum. Christopher. The New York Times correspondent, uh, Greenberg, I think his name is, uh, in, in Kabul, has just been kicked out for suggesting in a column that this could lead, actually, to a coup d'etat, and that the military take over uh, because they can't get a deal between uh, 
And so the next thing that they do is to say, we will run the country as a military and then, uh, say in a year's time, we'll have new elections. That is the balance at a time when we're all pulling out. Just, just to go back to that, that point on, on, on Nigeria and, and the prospect of RAF tornadoes going there for reconnaissance, that would be quite an undertaking, would it not? It's quite an undertaking. I mean, you can plan to do it, and on paper it looks OK. There's Nigeria down there, well south. We know the way. Off we go. However, logistics... Where do you put logistics? Where is the diversion airfields, for example, uh, if something goes wrong? Air-to-air refuelling, presumably, uh, but overflying. A lot of those countries will not agree to overflying to help out in uh, a British jet goes down to Nigeria. And uh, Okay, so you can go down over the sea all the way, but you've got to make sure that if you need to come inland for any particular reason... It could be just a failed engine, but if you have to come in, you've got to have that covered. That's why we need a carrier. <laughs> you had to get that in, didn't you? <laughs> so we can't go for two years, wouldn't you? Uh, Professor Rogers, um, that, that speed through around the world, I mean, y- you managed to summarise it very concisely there, but it does give a sense that there's a complete state of military catastrophe, at UK, French and US leadership struggling to cope. I, th- I think they are struggling to cope because you get these complex of factors mainly across North Africa and the Middle East. But, you know, at a time like this, you had to remember that the great majority of the world, most of the time, is actually at peace. And there's also been progress in quite a few parts of the world where there have been very difficult conflicts. Northern Ireland continues to make some progress. I admit it's an uneasy peace in Sri Lanka, and the Sri Lankan government may eventually get its act together and deal more fairly with the Tamils, but in a number of other parts of the world where, in fact, violence has actually decreased. So it's a mixed message, but that doesn't in any way diminish the fact that there are major problems from North Africa right through across the Middle East towards Afghanistan. It's just a small point, maybe, but uh, until the 9th of August, I don't think too many people in the United Kingdom certainly had ever heard of Ferguson, Mississippi. Mm. And then somebody is killed in a riot by a policeman. And then a second person is. And the whole of Ferguson is on under martial law at the moment. Armed, armed National Guard. Now, this is in the United States. This is in a country which is supposed to present an example. So Islamic State... And if you look at the, uh, the websites of other rebel groups, they're now pointing to Washington and to Ferguson and saying, and they're telling us that we've got it wrong, that they're the ideal state. And it adds to the other problem, how does one man, a president, cope with a major internal problem and also give his mind to the external problems. Which begs the question, so is this all too much for the US and its allies to handle? And next month, the NATO summit in Wales, 67 heads of state will gather to discuss the alliance's future plans. One group of former defence chiefs has written an open letter to David Cameron telling the Prime Minister what they think he should be talking about. Here's one of the signatories, Air Commodore Andrew Lambert. We're really looking at what the NATO summit should be looking at in the first instance. And we're saying in that that we need to have another look at our strategy. We're not saying we need to have some monolithic strategy as cast in stone for a thousand years. What we're saying is now is the time. Given the threats, we need to re-examine our strategy, reconsider what it means, re-examine what people's contribution will be. That by itself, hopefully, will give a very sound and, uh, and large signal to people in the rest of the world. Now, let's not forget that NATO, for whom, for whom many years we considered uh, only operated in Europe, did operate in Afghanistan for a number of years. 
So NATO does have a, a wider responsibility, and if NATO can show it has the determination, resolve, and the capability to intervene, well, that by itself will go some way to deterring adventurism across the world as a whole. Well, that letter I mentioned, written to David Cameron, uh, was written by the UK National Defence Association. Christopher, do you think they got a point? Yeah, they've got a point. Um, they are a well-known, or it's a well-known group of people who in all sorts of other areas, we know their names, uh, people like Mike Rose, General Mike Rose, um, uh, uh, Vice Admiral Jeremy Blackham, who have been going on at the same subject for ages. I will promise you, as worthy as they are, when they get to that meeting in Wales, there's not going to be a single world leader or NATO leader is going to even read what they've said. And if you go around the bazaars of, of London, all these pressure groups have the same thing going for them, and yet you have never seen a change of policy ever come about as the result of any of these pressure groups. Professor Paul Rogers, do you think there will be any uh, agreements, any announcements coming out of that summit? Oh, there will be agreements and announcements, but they will re really be rather bland. I suppose it's something that you said earlier on. I mean, NATO has been involved in what, for 11 years? You know, it's more. It's, it's 13 years now in Afghanistan. One of the things that I find very, rather difficult to take is NATO seems to be very bad at examining its own failures because writ large there have been huge problems in Afghanistan for almost all of those years. NATO has not been a success there and I think a starting point should be a little bit more honesty. Well, about you think there should be sort of a, a stop taking of what's gone wrong, do you? Uh, well, I think at the very least you see very little evidence of that, at least in public. Maybe behind the scenes, but certainly not in public. But to that extent, it may be very difficult for a large group of nations to come together and admit these things. But unless they do, I can't see too much hope for a sort of a united, effective form of guidance in the future. And the other part of this, of course, is that the problem is there, let's say, for 13 years in Afghanistan, which incidentally is, is, is more than the world, First and Second World War we've been, we, we've been there. However, governments change and political parties change within government. And therefore, the responsibilities, as well as the inadequacies and we are, by and large, in a decade of incompetence in, in, in European government, they change. Uh, and therefore, you're not going to get anything else but a rather, almost a sort of, it doesn't make sense line that ever comes out of any of these subnets. All very worthy. You're nodding, Julian Thompson. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of, if I wanted to sum it up in one sentence, I'd say the way they work is, uh, or the government's work is, do nothing in the hope the problem will go away. Exactly. That's, that's quite a bleak assessment but of things. Is. That's what they're doing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk, but absolutely no action. And I totally agree with everything Christopher said uh, about NATO. Let's, um, let's just come back to where we started today, which was Iraq. Uh, Christopher, what do you think Britain's next move is going to be? Uh, Britain's next move is going to see who signs up. Uh, but it's got its planning, uh, it's got its planning for its, um, uh, I suppose, a limited response of what it actually can do. Nobody is going to put together brigades, divisions, etc. to go to Iraq. Mm -hmm. That doesn't actually work. And therefore, um, I think this, it's pretty obvious that the solution is not political, it's not military, it's a combination of regional consequences, how, uh, the ability of, of, of diverting uh, IS, but none of that is so easy that we can say that's the way to do it. And I think one of the sadnesses certainly from the United Kingdom, talking down uh, in, in Whitehall in a couple of days, listening to what a man called Richard Barrett, who was the counter-terrorism man in MI6, was talking about. 
Uh, and he says, trouble is, we don't have an idea that will work and public wants something which will work, let's say, by next week and wait if there's another hostage uh, uh, mm. uh, executed. Uh, you, you mentioned next week. If I could just ask each of you, three gentlemen, to, to tell me what you're looking at for next week, what's going to be catching your attention or what you're hoping to see movement on. Paul Rogers, you first of all. Well, certainly Gaza is crucial. It's at the back just at the moment, but that is going to come to the fore, I'm sure. And one hopes that this time it might be possible to get progress. Major General June Thompson. Well, I'd, I'd look to see what IS will do next, because I think that is, is, is one of the big games in town. What reaction are they going to have to what I think will be continued uh, 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 strikes by the Americans? Christopher? Uh, I would watch the White House, watch the Oval Office. It is a huge, huge test because uh, President Obama has got to only commit more than there is now. Uh, and then he has really put his whole presidency and the legacy of his presidency is that likely, on the line. Is that likely to happen, do you think? I think it is. I think it is. And that's the, that's the difficulty that he has at the moment. So really watch how uh, Obama plays this. And also how Congress, what the Armed Services Committee in, in the Senate say, for example. Um, but eventually, don't forget, we have got an election next year. That doesn't matter because defence has never played a part in an election. Uh, in America... It's all out of Afghanistan, etc., etc., and also we don't want to be there. At time of election, Clinton was right. It's the mm. economy doomed. It mm. ain't is. Um, and ju just before we go, I wanted to look back at an event this week uh, because it concerns you, Major General Julian Thompson. A, a big first for the Royal Marines because they've broken a new world record. I don't know if you know about this, Sergeant Bugler Graham Stevenson, the longest individual drum roll. Congratulations, the Royal Marines. Well done, the Royal Marines. Yes, Do you know yes. how long he went on for? It was supposed to be in 1664, 16 hours and 64 yes, minutes. Right. Yes, he went on for much longer. He now. did, didn't he? It was 18 minutes and 30. Indeed. What did the Royal Marines well do in done. 1830? Oh, plenty of things. <laughs> they were in Syria, actually. Were they? Yes. Listen, uh, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much uh, to all of our guests. That's to Christopher Lee, Julian Thompson and Paul Rogers. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BF.